You're listening to Ants Talk. My next guest worked in the porn industry for 17 years. His family were the local porn stars or porn brokers. He has some very interesting stories to tell us. Welcome to the show, Daniel. How are you? I'm, I'm bloody good, thank you. It's good to be here and uh, I look forward to talking about porn. I know. I'm <laughs> fascinated. I can't wait to hear the stories. So, Daniel, how did your family get into the industry? My parents, when they got married uh, in the 70s, were farmers and they walked off their farm in Singleton and they started their new lives. And my mum ended up in haberdashery and selling wool and grocery items. And she had a couple of stores in the western suburbs and my father ended up as a concreter. So in the 90s, they were looking for something new to do and they got out of their careers and their businesses and they started a pawn shop. And the reason why we ended up with the pawn shop was that my uncle, he was an ex-police officer and he'd started a pawn shop in Bathurst and it was called the Bathurst Curiosity Shop. And basically he said it was a license to print money. You could buy something, resell it, make a profit. You could lend on items of value and uh, get 20% on your money. So it was a very good business model, uh, but we went into it blindly. I think the most experience we had was from my grandfather borrowing money in Marrickville when he was a young man and he'd take his broken watch and he'd shake it so they it'd start to tick <laughs> he'd hock it even though it was broken so he had a little experience they really have been quite an institution in Australia I mean I remember when I was young and broke <laughs> that I went and got a few loans myself from the old pawn shops back in the day yeah, they're, they're, they're part of our culture. Yeah, and definitely. we get to a stage where, you know, sometimes we just need a bit of cash. And we would work with high profile executives who have a very small burn rate. And basically, they live paycheck to paycheck. Mm. And they would run out of petrol. And they would have to hock their watch, their Rolex, to put uh, gas in the car. And that would just get them through the day. So they got yeah. the paycheck. And then they'd go on to making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. It was just got them out of a spot of bother. Yeah, yeah. I think it's done that for a lot of people along history. Mm. Um, so tell us, how did your, um, so where were the stores actually based? We had our store at 278 George Street, Windsor. So to our left-hand side uh, on George Street, Windsor, we had the railway station. And that was really good because a lot of our clients used the railway. They would then walk down past the pub, uh, play the pokies, have a beer. <laughs> they'd collect their Centrelink payment. And by the time they got to our shop, they'd spent their money. And then they could go up to the bank and pay for their credit cards. Uh, there was a brothel up the street. There was some more pubs. <laughs> Whatever they used to do with their money after that was not my concern. <laughs> so is this Windsor, Queensland? Windsor, New South Wales. New South Wales. So right there on the Hawkesbury River. Ah, oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. That's hilarious. Why do you th- what do you think the one thing that people wouldn't know about the industry? I think people think it's a dirty industry. The, f- the first thing they hear, pawn shop, secondhand good, I'd never borrow money. But they forget that people borrow money from the banks all the time. Yeah. And before there were banks, there were pawnbrokers and there were traders. Uh, I think there's a big misconception in Australia that stolen goods go through pawn shops. But they are so regulated. If somebody wants to borrow money, you've got to provide 100 points of ID. You've got to show the serial numbers on the items of goods that you're borrowing. And then it's put into a register. And that register is connected to the National Theft Register. So if something's stolen, it'll be identified in moments. Mm. And the perpetrator will be caught. 
no doubt about it. Yeah. That's the first part. The second part is that a pawnbroker has license, a, a license. And if you buy stolen secondhand goods and you know it, you can lose your license and your livelihood. So if you were to run a shonky deal, you'd be caught pretty quickly. Yeah. I think the third thing that people forget is that uh, eBay, Amazon, Garage Sales, Gumtree, this is where the stolen goods move through because people don't have to prove where they got the item from yeah. and it's all traded in cash. So I believe it's probably one of the safest place uh, in our pawn shop it, coming. I'd say about June, July, August, September, every year would get fishing rods, would get whippersnippers, chainsaws, lawnmowers, and people would come in and borrow 50 bucks on it. And this was like the busiest time in our business. And there'd be just stuff everywhere. And eventually I asked my brother, I said, why do you think we get all this stuff at this time of year? And he said, oh, it's probably because the lawns don't grow and people can't go fishing. I said, it's got to be something else. So we started to survey our customers and we said, why do you come and hock the same stuff at the same time every year? And they laughed. They said, this is the cheapest place to store your goods in the whole of the town and it's the safest. <laughs> You're protected by the police. That's hilarious. And so people, and this was fascinating, people would borrow money on their goods and go overseas because we were the safest place. We were like Fort Knox. Yeah, yeah. And that's how they used us as a storage facility as well. And it's funny because you actually just mentioned about eBay, et cetera. It really is like the old time eBay because it's stuff that people want to sell. It's a great place to go and put it. They're getting a lot of eyes on the product and then they're making money from it in hopefully a safe way. eBay is not that safe, but the pawn shops always have been. I mean, I remember many, many years ago, so many people that were surrounding me in my life always use pawn shops mm. to either get rid of their old engagement rings from the marriage that broke up to men wanting to sell different parts of cars that they had sitting around the house or, you know, mm. being forced to clean out the garage and other people that would you know, go and take their stuff in that was a bad birthday present or Christmas present. <laughs> I'm sure you get a lot of those. Toasters, <laughs> yeah, toasters, yeah. kettles, electric uh, blankets. <laughs> and it was actually, it's actually a very good way for people that don't have a lot of money to actually just get a bit of a loan, it, re it really, I mean, it still is. It's, it's a great way for people that aren't making a ton of money to actually get mm. just a little bit of pocket money to make the, the week a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. we, we would see people coming in to pay their employees' wages. I mean, how mm. credible is that? Wow. We, we had a gentleman who'd come in and pawn his BMW so he could pay the wages of his people. And he, he didn't have to pay them. Yeah. He did not have to pay them. He could have said, well, stuff you. But he said, no, I'll pawn my car. That's incredible. I'll get the money and I'll make sure everybody got their wages. We would see tradies uh, on a Friday. They wanted to pay their men at 4 p.m. So the bricklayers would come in and hock their bricklaying equipment or their scaffolding so they could pay their men. And they'll do that because they hadn't received their checks. That's and they would incredible. go and collect the debt on the weekend and they'll be back there 9 a.m. Monday morning retrieving their goods. So if any of those um, chefs out there are listening, there's a tip to how to pay your staff. <laughs> we, we have seen collections of knives, you know, the most exquisite yeah. knives in their role. Chefs would come in and borrow them because that's a tool of trade yeah. and they're worth a fortune. They are. You know, a, a professional chef spends thousands on their knives and we used to borrow and lend on them all the time. Some of those Japanese knives are just ridiculously priced because they're, it's, it's almost like an art. 
mm. how they prepare mm. and make them. So have you actually seen that porn show that's on TV? I, I even uh, have been to their store in Vegas. Oh, have you? And is, that, <laughs> is that sort of, how real does that ring true? Look, in, in my opinion, it's not true. Yeah. It's very staged. Um, what you can imagine our pawn shop to be like, it was more like a Jerry Springer show. <laughs> that that was the reality. Uh, people would come to our shop for entertainment and they would watch the people. So I would say Porn Stars is great because it it's the epitome of how all porn brokers would want to feel that they're this place where everything's shiny and worth a ton of money and their customers are clean and self-made millionaires. But the reality it's not the Mm. porn broking shop is like a episode of Jerry Springer. There are punch ups at the front. The the list of stories that I could wow. hopefully we get some time to talk yeah, about. We are. I'll, I'll We're going to be talking about those very soon. <laughs> you, your jaw's going to drop, your eyes are going to open, and it, it happens like Jerry Springer. That's incredible. That really is. It's hilarious. The funny thing is, is that what I've noticed. I mean, we've got one around the corner from us right here, and I must say, it's one of the messiest shops I've ever walked into. <laughs> And it's sort of like, well, how are you going to sell anything when you can't really see anything? It's all <laughs> entangled in other crap, basically. But most stores aren't like that, I must say. They keep the, the shop pretty well kept. So we have some great headings that relate to some of the stories that you have about the people that will frequent the stores. I'm so excited for this. <laughs> and you're going to tell us a little about each one. So number one is Mr. Corrupt. Well, I, I think he must have been my, uh, he had a crush on my brother. For sure. So my brother and I, we would run the pawnbroking business. Mum and dad were away, semi-retired. And uh, this gentleman came in and I, I won't mention his name, but he, he had a first and a last name that were both first names. And he also had a split personality, bipolar. So one day he would come in as one personality and another day he'd come in, in as a second personality. In the second personality, he would speak about himself in the third person. Oh, no. And he'd refer to himself as Mr. Corrupt. And he would say to my brother, he'd say, Mr. Corrupt will be coming to the pawn shop today. And so we'd play along with it and would say, and what does Mr. Corrupt want today? And he'd say, well, Mr. Corrupt would like to borrow some money. And would say, well, Mr. Corrupt, what would he like to borrow and how much? And he'd say, well, he doesn't want to use a physical good. He'd like to make an alternate payment, if you know what I mean. And Mr. Corrupt wanted to have sex <laughs> in return for some money. And he would ask questions. He'd be like, what's behind the curtain? And would say, there's nothing behind the curtain, Mr. Corrupt. And say, is there a bed behind the curtain? <laughs> so Mr. Corrupt, he wanted to have sex with my brother. And my brother was two years older than me. Uh, he was about 15 kilos lighter than me and was quite pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Corrupt had a crush on him. That's and one day, hilarious. Mr. Corrupt wanted to come out the back of the store. And we told him, no. Go off! <laughs> <laughs> and I, then I grabbed the uh, what we called the dentist, which was a metal baseball bat, and I chased him down the street <laughs> with a baseball bat. <laughs> what? So that was Mr. Corrupt. Oh, my God. There's some people out there. Aren't there? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, honestly, Ant, um, it's it's not a it, it's not a rarity because one of our competitors uh, he was in a surrounding suburb. My mother went to his pawnbroking store one day just to talk to another pawnbroker, see what was happening in the industry, and he offered her some advice. 
and she could make an alternate payment. And he had a bed at the back of his wow. pawn shop and tried to put it on my mum. It's incredible. I mean, it's not, it, I definitely know it's not rare. I've been propositioned myself in some of the weirder situations and it's just like, are you serious? <laughs> I want something a little bit more worth a little bit more than what you're offering. <laughs> just a little. <laughs> this is Ants Talk. So the next one is why get paid in a $50 bill when you can have 10 $5 bills? There's one guy who used to come in for years. And he would borrow on a Nokia 5510. Remember the old Nokias? Yeah, and every, <laughs> every week he borrowed $50 on it and the interest was uh, 20%. So it was $10 per month or part thereof. And he would come in and he would borrow on it. And every single week he would show you his charger. He would show you that the phone worked. He'd leave the SIM card in there. He'd get the loan and then he'd get his $50. So it was just a pattern. He did the same thing every single week. And when he would ask for his money, he would ask for the $50 in $5 bills. And what he would do is when we'd give him the $50 in $5 bills, he'd sit there and count it one by one. And he'd ask for his money in fives because it made him feel like he had more money. And he'd start to wave it around. And it was so important for him that he had recognition that he had money because a 50 in your wallet, the wallet's thin, but if you've got 10 fives, it's thick. And so it made him feel that he had more money and then he'd, he'd count it out. So he'd take the notes out and he'd count them, flick it and lay it down, <laughs> flick it and lay it down. He'd lay all these tens across, uh, these fives across the table and then take the cash. He actually didn't need the money. It was just significance. Yeah. He just needed somebody to speak to. He needed somebody to talk to and he was buying himself some attention. And then yeah. he had the eyes of the other people. So he lived in the local caravan park. He worked at the local chicken farm collecting eggs and he just wanted to also demonstrate to the people who were in the shop who also lived in the caravan park that he had cash. Wow. It was just significance. Lovely guy. That's incredible. I mean, it's, it's, it's heartwarming to hear that sort of stuff because, I mean, you, you find that there's been a lot of shows lately. There's one of them is actually that show Ambulance that I watch. Um, where you've got sort of the medics that go out and rescue people's lives, et cetera. And I've noticed you get a lot of people calling for that same reason to ambulances and it's because they're lonely and they just want someone and some attention, really. It's really quite sad. The next one, cockroach infestations. Mm. I can almost envision this. <laughs> we, we come from a very clean family. Um, we've had a house cleaner. Um, my mother, if I didn't clean my room, she would take my clothes and throw them on the top of my car. And, and that's just how our house was. If the, if the dirty undies were left on the floor, they weren't washed. If the dirty socks weren't turned uh, the right way and they're left inside out, that's how they were washed. So we learned to be really clean. So we got to this stage where we had this very low lying desk in the pawn shop and the people would bring in their goods and they'd bring them in and it might be a microwave and they'd place the microwave down on the bench that was about waist level and as it would hit the table all these small black things would just drop out of the bottom of the microwave and so you try to figure it out the first couple of times like what is that and then we started to get these cockroach infestations in the pawn shops, in the pawn shop. And we're constantly having it sprayed. We're constantly having it baited. And what was happening inside the microwaves and the TV is that in the caravan parks and in the, um, 
the public housing that they're living in, there was infestations there. Mm. So the cockroaches were breeding inside their televisions. They'd come into our shop, they'd put it down, the eggs would fall everywhere Ugh. and then would start to get infestations in the shop. And so it was disgusting. It was horrible. So we started to put these policies in place and I ended up with dermatitis because I was washing my hands. I swear like a hundred times a day. I had the sanitizer pumping it out all the time. We ended up creating a new desk and a cleaning station where they had to clean all of their goods before they got a loan on it. And I had never seen things so grimy and dirty in my life. And so we'd just get these cockroaches and these eggs everywhere. People don't realise how hideous that actually is. I mean, I've lived through some of that myself. I actually was in, just before I left Sydney, I was living in this unit where right next door was this dear old lovely lady, you know, quite elderly, used to walk with a, a cane and sort of like a frame. And I started, my unit next door started getting infested with cockroaches. And I mean infested. I was, I literally bombed that place, I think six times. And only then did I finally get some resolution. Mm-hmm. I then found out that, um, cause I hadn't seen her for a few weeks. So I was asking some people to check on her and then I ended up actually, I ended up actually calling the police. Cause I just thought, well, could have fallen down and no one knows her. And so they went to actually check on her and what had happened was she actually had gotten ill. She'd been put into hospital. And when the police came to me, they just, literally had the look of horror on their faces and they're like how well do you know her and I'm like oh not that well I sort of see her out there as we pass each other and I'll ask her how her day is or I'll hop her with her bags up to a door and they mm. went have you ever been inside and I went no and they went do you mind if we look into your unit and just see the layout and I went okay and they then told me that because she was so crippled she actually couldn't go upstairs to the, in the unit. Now upstairs in our units was our bathroom. So she couldn't go to her own bathroom. Mm. So she was going to the bathroom in plastic bags, which were then spotted all around the unit. They said Mm. that as she went upstairs, it was literally like one big spider web. You had to walk through these webs to actually even go upstairs. And it was so bad. They couldn't even get up upstairs, but thankfully, I mean, she was then taken out of that and put into housing that, would suit her better, but I just couldn't believe that she was left in that situation. It, it actually made me really sad. You know, I wasn't so angry about the cockroaches then. We, we had a guy very similar to this coming into our shop and supposedly he had an incredible IQ. Um, he, was, he was supposed to be a genius, but he burned out. And the local rumor was that he sucked his own eye out with a oh. vacuum cleaner. So he was, he was missing the eye ball. And there was just a cavity. And so he would come in and this pus would just weep out of his eye. And this wasn't an isolated event. This probably happened over 15 years. This pus was just pouring out of his eye. So the nickname we gave him was Pus Eye. We're like, okay, Pus Eye's here. And in that day, we'd had the Glen 20. And the the smell from him was so putrid. Like if if he walked into the shop, the shop smelt for days. And would have the Glen 20 out like, and, and he lived in that same state. I remember the local Rotary Club went to clean his house out. Same thing. Just absolute putrid. It's really it's, sad. It, I mean, it's sad it's that sad. people end up living like that. And there isn't some sort of service that are checking on these people. It, it really, it's quite disturbing that our elderly 
have to actually live like that. It really is. Mm. Going back to your funny stories. <laughs> so the next one, condoms in your mum's camera box, sex tapes and the <laughs> anus family. <laughs> well, the anus family, uh, when we first opened up the, the porn shop, um, my mother is a good Catholic girl. She's uh, only ever had truly one boyfriend, my father. And uh, they would buy and lend on these VHS tapes. And remember VHS, you know, we're, we're talking yeah, oh, back yeah, in right. the 80s <laughs> and 90s. And somebody bought this big box of tapes in. And my mum's flicked through them all. They were all current titles and they lent money on them. And my brother and I started to go through the, the box of tapes. And my brother's like, mum, this, this is not, what is this? And he pulls it out and it looks like the Adams family. <laughs> but it's a porno and it's called the anus family. Oh, no. And my mum, good girl who goes to church, she almost died. She had lent on a full <laughs> box of pornos. <laughs> oh, that is hilarious. But this became a huge uh, lending item for our business because those porn VHS videos, they would sell retail for between $50 and $70. Wow. And they were a huge trade in the 90s. So I remember seeing my first porno cover and it was the anus family. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, these things start to come into your peripheral. And then um, as digital cameras became popular, they were a good item to buy and sell and lend on. Mm. And uh, two good stories here. I remember one guy came in with his girlfriend and they came up to the counter, me and my brother are serving, and he said, you know, could I get a loan on this uh, video camera? I said, sure, why not? Uh, let's have a look. How much do you want? He said, 100 bucks. So I picked it up. It's like a JVC little flip view out yeah. uh, screen on the side. And I started to watch the video. And I'm testing it. I'm looking at him going, that's him. I'm looking at her on the video. I'm like going, that's her. And they've got a homemade porno and they've left oh, the tape no. in. And I'm testing it. And I said to my brother, I said, hey, come and check it, this out. Tell me if this is a good one. Should we lend on it? And my brother looks at it. He looks at me, goes, just shakes his head. He said, okay, give him a hundred bucks. <laughs> so we gave him a hundred bucks and they left the tape in there. And they didn't take the tape out. That and is so hilarious. they went in about 15 minutes, they both came back in and they were beat red. And they said, uh, we left our tape in the, uh, in the video camera. And my brother <laughs> said, I think you did. And we've <laughs> so, got that on sale for another 50. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had that one. And then uh, a, a woman came in, she had a digital camera, brand new in the box, Canon, uh, one of these zoom lenses on it. And she said, I'd like to get a $50 loan on the camera and I said, sure, why not? Let's have a look. So I opened it up and it's in its packaging. I unraveled it and all of a sudden there's a used condom in the box. <gasps> and I've just freaked out. I'm like, yeah, this is disgusting. How dare you do this? Well, this is the worst thing you ever want to see in your life. And she said, what, what, what? And she flicked it around and there's a used condom in there. Oh. And she started to flick through the photos and her son had been doing home porno photos with his girlfriend and leave the loaded oh, condom no. in the box. <laughs> so oh. The mum was devastated. He was probably imagine. gonna he was probably gonna get rid of it and then forgot it. <laughs> You'd see this. Uh, I remember having a um, this 17 inch Dell laptop that came in and it was it was one of the latest models and 
the people had borrowed on it. And, you know, we don't go through the files because they're going to borrow on it. They're going to come back. Yeah. But sometimes they don't come back for it. And so we went through and we should clear the hard drive. We turn it on, put the password in, and it's like about 30 gigs just of home porn. And this young woman and a boyfriend, they want to be in People magazine. So they've done all their home photos. We've got them on the hard drive. There's toys and, and there's letters typed up and drafted to People magazine and Playboy and Home Girl and Homeboy magazine. And we would just find this stuff all the time on their I'm amazed phones. that people didn't try and um, bring in their toys and try to get a loan. <laughs> well, they, they didn't bring in the toys, but they bought in the big glass bongs. Remember when they had these like, oh, exotic God, yeah, bongs? Yeah, 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 they yeah. used to bring in their hydroponic kits and would lend on the, the, the heating lamps and all of that. That's incredible. Yeah. They bring it And in. to think that all of it really is traced. It's like, are you really that dumb? <laughs> Well, the, the interesting thing was the police used to give us a hard time about lending on the hydroponics. Mm. But we said it's an item of value. You can buy it retail. There's nothing illegal about it. Yeah, We can lend on it. So it was an item of value. And if that person was willing to take the risk, then, then they could. That's it. People and used I mean, to there's lend on shops everywhere. So there is. And, and then, you know, homebrew, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, oh, yeah. that homebrew equipment was worth thousands of dollars. Mm. Yeah, dad had his whole kit. I don't know whatever happened to that. That fad ran out very quickly <laughs> once he drank the beer. <laughs> it's a lot of hard work. <laughs> oh, it is. It's ridiculous. There's so many steps. Tune in each week for Ants Talk to learn about real life stories, celebrities and everything in between. So the next one, how did you survive the Wood Royal Commission? Well, the Wood Royal Commission was pretty wild and they wanted to shut down pawnbrokers. And whoever was in charge there really had a target against pawnbrokers and they wanted to make us all look like crooks. So in, in each area of Sydney, they had these pawnbroking units and they had an anti-theft squad. And their job was to catch pawnbrokers buying stolen secondhand goods. Right. And what would happen would be, we'd be running our business and all of a sudden you'd hear the sirens. You'd hear the handbrake pulled up and the car screeched to a stop. And you'd get 12 to 14 police rushing into the shop that had their hands on their gun, that had bulletproof vests on, stab-proof vests on, and they would just put the shop in lockdown. And they'll do an immediate audit. And they told us directly, we're going to get you and we're going to shut you down. And we, they'd sit us on the step. They said, sit there, don't move. And they'd turn the shop upside down. And they would do this month after month. And it it would freak you out. You know, you, you're, oh, you're a teenager, your heart's, yeah. your heart's beating. My mum there having a panic attack because we're running a legitimate business. And they would go through and they would fine you for a spelling mistake. Mm. So I might write down Anthony, but instead of putting one T, I put two T's. And that's a $1,000 mistake and a point oh. off your license. Wow. And, and our customers, they'd be in there freaking out because they're like, all of a sudden, they just shut the shop. Yeah. And that's it. And you can't do anything. They could come to our property, our house, because it was uh, registered premises. They could come in 24 hours a day. If they said, open up your shed at one o'clock in the morning, you'd have to open up the shed. And this went on for, for months and years and we'd get fined and then you'd have to go to court and then the local judge would kick it out. It's like, this is ridiculous. What a waste of time. 
send them back to their business. It's a spelling mistake. And they were really out to get us. And I think what it did through the Royal Commission, it filtered out the crooked cops. Yeah. And a lot of the crooked cops who were bullying us, they used to say to things like to me, they'd say, uh, Daniel, you know, that's a, uh, that's a very nice set of golf clubs over there. You know, could we organize something? Mm. And they'd like say these little things and you'd be going, hey, is this a setup or are you for real? And that, that were for real. Uh, I remember walking out the back one day and I walked out and cop was like, what are you doing? What are you looking at? I'm like, why are you where our money is? What are you doing near our money? And every time he come in, he was always near our till. See, we still had to man the shop and they'd be at the back and he was always near the till. I'm not saying that he stole, but what the hell was he doing next to the till where all the yeah. cash was? And we're talking a float. You know, sometimes we're holding 10, 15, 20 grand of cash. How do you know if a, a thousand bucks gone? That's it. And it's not so, like you're going to turn around and get to be able to tell on him. No, well, when somebody's got their gun on their hip and they're showing exactly. you when they yeah. walk in and they're in the pawn breaking squad and they're there to find you and put you out of business. Very wild few years, very, very uh, stressful for both of my parents. Yeah. And you didn't want to come to business. They made you feel bad. They made you feel that you're doing something wrong. But we're lucky that we run an honest show and we're good people. And I don't believe you can bully an honest person. No. And, and the judge knew it. Yeah. So it, scary. Really, it was very dodgy back then. I remember I was younger and living in Queensland. I used to see, because I worked in nightclubs and I used to do a lot of artwork for, for nightclubs for their flyers, promotions and things like that. And I'd be sitting there through the daytime. No one's in, in the club, of course. It's just me, the manager of the, the, or the owner of the club. Police would turn up. They'd come in. They'd leave with an envelope. And, you know, and I used to look at that when I was younger and I didn't even blink an eye because I was, you know, mm. just didn't really know what was going on. But as mm. I've gotten older, I've looked back and I thought, okay, now I know what was going on because it was, um, the Fortitude Valley was rife with corruption back in those days. Yep. Absolutely yep. rife. So the next one, the story behind the dentist and the attitude adjuster. <laughs> <laughs> well, we needed protection, um, and it wasn't against the condoms in the in the in the camera boxes. It was from some of the rough people that we used to get in, and we would get a whole range of bikey gangs. And you'd have your Comancheros, you'd have your Coffin Cheaters, you'd have your Hell's Angels, um, your Jolly Jokers. Now they were pretty cool. They were always really cool people to us. They never caused us problems, and we always said to them, "Look, if you want to come into the pawn shop." You're allowed to come in, but you're not allowed to wear your colours because you don't. We don't want uh, the banditos thinking this is a common chero shop. Yeah, so yeah. you come in and you enjoy our services. No colours. They were cool about that, and they were really nice. But you'd get some other people who were really wild. And like I said before, it was like a Jerry Springer show. And uh, I remember my brother getting attacked once by a person out the front. And people were desperate at times. People were high on drugs and we had to protect ourselves. Mm. So we had two baseball bats. One was a timber baseball bat and that was called the attitude adjuster. And when people started to threaten violence, we would just reach under the desk and would take the attitude adjuster and would sit it down on the table. And as soon as you sat it down on the table, they melted the and attitude their attitude adjusted. totally changed. <laughs> so they went from a bully 
to a mouse and they're like, oh, okay, I'm really sorry about that. If that didn't work and my brother was at that end, I'd pull out the dentist and the dentist was there to rearrange your teeth. <laughs> and when I stood there with that in my hand facing upwards, they knew they were in trouble. And there was yeah. a couple of times we'd chase people down the streets with the, with the dentist, including Mr. Corrupt. That's hilarious. I love it. The dentist. It was, it was, <laughs> and, we, and we had it written on there. My, my dad wrote it on these. He's, he's a real character. The That's attitude adjuster and, and the dentist. So tell us what would be the most valuable item you've ever seen in store? Talking about the, uh, the bikies, uh, we saw some club rings. And these club rings were quite interesting. So when you joined the club, you got a ring and that ring uh, binds you to the club for life. And it should always be returned back to the club if you're ever to leave. And it's a, it's a tough thing to leave one of these clubs. Yeah. So I've seen some, um, some bikey rings there. I've also seen some two and three carat diamonds. Uh, I've seen uh, golden rings uh, worth, you know, thirty and $40,000. Uh, I have seen bikers chains. Uh, I swear there was one, it was, it was about half a kilo of gold. Wow. It was about that wide and about that thick and had a giant cross on it. And I think he must have lent about $5,000 at a wow. time, but the gold was worth so much more. Yeah. Uh, talking about, uh, Die, uh, rings and um, wedding bands. We used to have bags of wedding bands, like shopping bags full. And we would sell bags of those to Chinese at a time and they'd melt it down into golden ingots. They'd just melt it all down. So I think the most expensive things was definitely the, the jewelry and the mm. precious gems. Yeah. And they were so precious that people used to break into the shop, you know, this uh, seven meter high ceiling, they'd get up to the top and they'd abseil down at night that rob us and <laughs> that abseil back up and take off with the jewelry. So it's that's a jewelry. A, to be honest, that's the one thing I used to love looking at um, in hock shops is all the jewelry because you'd always see stuff that you have never seen. It's always very mm. unique and period jewelry because you'd, you'd see stuff, an old grandma that you never would have seen before, especially like rubies and emeralds and stuff like that compared to these days when almost everything's diamonds. So it was always mm -hmm. really, really interesting to look at that sort of stuff. What, um, tell the listeners what you're up to now these days, because I know it's a very different field. Well, these days I'm, I'm a specialist in emotional intelligence. So I'm working with companies, uh, privately owned million dollar businesses, all the way up to privately owned billion dollar businesses. And as a business coach, I help them win sales now for their business, but I also help them choose and bring together a, a world-class team of people. So I'm working here in Taiwan. My company's based in Sydney and I'm serving people in most states of Australia, uh, the UK and America. And my job is to help these businesses run more effectively and create higher profits. So it's a very different game to the pawnbroking, but um, just it's, it's, it's still like a game of chess. You're moving one pawn over here. <laughs> you're putting the right people in the right places. Yeah. And the beauty of it is you've dealt with most types of people. So, Well, so many lessons that I share with my clients today come from the pawnbrokers. And, and we talk about in my business today, customers for life. Mm. And it's amazing. Uh, our business, uh, we closed that in about 2007, uh, 13 years later, we can walk down the street and people will yell out across the street, hey, Tolson family. <laughs> and uh, my wife's been walking down the street and she's like, who's that? And I said, oh, that was one of the customers in the pawn shop. 
Uh, people used to invite us to their weddings and the christening of their children. And I take these philosophies into businesses today and I say, you can never judge a book by its cover. Yeah. These people are the salt of the earth. They're the kindest. They're the sweetest people. And it doesn't matter who you're dealing with. You've got to treat them like a million dollar customer. Mm. And every person, you know, the gentleman who was counting out his fives on the table, we gave him his fives because we treated him like a million dollar customer. The people who were coming in like Mr. Corrupt, although I chased him down the street one day and I knew he was Mr. Corrupt that, that day when he came in and his personality changed, we still welcomed him to the shop and yeah. we made sure everybody uh, was treated with dignity. And this is the philosophy we share with businesses today. You've got to build a business and with the intention of having customers for life. Yeah. You want to see them down the street and you want them to say hello. You don't want to have to carry the dentist. Exactly. <laughs> you don't want to get the knife in the back. All hide behind, yeah, hide behind the building because they're walking past. I, I completely agree with that because I worked for Chanel for, for around 10 years back in 2000, well, before 2008. And I've still got people that are now my really good close friends that were actually customers that I served at Chanel. And I mm. mean, this is... 15 something years later and we're still friends and it's it's amazing that the rapport and the the relationships you can build with people that you actually respect mm. Mm. One of the, one, I, I ran a training in sydney not long ago called eat that frog and it's a time management seminar and one of the young men in there uh, he's got a million dollar business and he used to be a customer in the pawn shop years ago he would come in with his dad. They would buy VHS. They'd buy DVDs. They were always buying. They never borrowed. And, you know, this relationship has gone on for more than 25 years. It's incredible. So isn't it? today he's a customer and he sends me referrals all the time. He's like, hey, can you give my mate a call? He needs some help in his business. And so we've been doing business for 25 years. And I believe that's how it should be. Like yeah. what you're saying with Chanel. So why he not, wasn't buying make the porn once then. <laughs> i never asked him <laughs> we'll, we'll find that out later <laughs> so tell us daniel where can people find more about you where can they find out about you i've got two websites come and have a look at my personal website which is danieltolson.com and uh, if you're in business uh, you can visit my uh, other business page which is win sales now dot com and you can get a copy of my latest book called win sales now fantastic and that's tolson t-o-l-s-o-n that's it fantastic thanks so much for coming onto the show and having a chat i really appreciate it i love those my stories <laughs> you can tell the other x-rated ones later on <laughs> <I can't wait. laughs> all righty we'll speak soon thanks Ant. thank you ants talk it's like oprah but not